we're going to be talking um, again, actually, because we interviewed her before, uh, Sky McAlpine. Um, this book is called A Table Full of Love. Um, and, and the subtitle pretty much explains where she goes with this book, Recipes to Comfort, Seduce, Celebrate, and Everything Else in Between. And I think, Sky, that it's a, a great success um, I, I just think it's, it's a beautiful book. Uh, it, it reflects your life so honestly, truly. I mean, I think you say some very simple things that are so true that you wonder why you hadn't thought of them before yourself. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's very kind of you to say and means a lot. Um, I, I, I hope, I mean, it's, I hope, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you feel that the it feels like an honest book because I really did try and be uh, very honest and very open and it is definitely more personal book than anything that I've ever written before um, and I did when writing it at times kind of uh, struggle um, with uh, you know kind of on honoring those emotions because love is love is a complicated thing um, and um, yeah, our relationship around food can sometimes be complicated as well. So instead of trying trying to work around those themes, you have um, not. It's not traditionally organized. This cookbook, listeners. No. I mean, <laughs> really um, yeah. I, mean, really I, I would like uh, to know your thought process in figuring out the titles for the the uh, sections of the book are comfort, seduce nourish, spoil, cocoon, and then I, I like that section on menus as well. Um, what, what led you to do this? Did you look at all the recipes and figure out uh, what would make the most sense in terms of organizing them or what? So with the book, I kind of really wanted it to be about why we cook as much as, or if not even more than, about how to cook. So they're all recipes that I cook regularly. They're all very simple and hopefully quite intuitive to make. Um, but I wanted to shift the emphasis away from the food in a way and onto the people that we share that food with and the people that we cook for and um, sort of important people in our lives and how sharing, you know, cooking for them is, is it's ultimately an expression always of love when we cook for someone. I mean, I, I, I kind of, the premise for the book is that I love to cook because I love the people that I cook for um, right. and everything else flowed from that. And so I was kind of exploring this idea of different kinds of love and how we express those different kinds of love through food. So the comfort chapter, for example, is really about friendship and the value of friendship, um, but also about recipes that, you know, you can cook for friends when they're down and when you want to sort of care for them. Um, whereas the seduced chapter is kind of like date night food and much more about kind of romantic kind of love. Yeah, I, I guess listeners probably should know um, that you divide your time between um, Venice uh, and uh, London, um, and you're married to an Australian, yes. and <laughs> you have two children of, of diverse ages. I mean, <laughs> yes. yes, and absolutely. And, 
so, uh, but you have so much to say. I just think it's a beautiful way to uh, to actually get your thoughts out is through these recipes. I mean, that's the thing that I took away from the cookbook, although some of them are really uh, interesting and creative also. Uh, they, we should also mention that they do reflect um, influences, uh, Italian, um, English, um, no, they're not as much English as, as I have <laughs> been exposed be more, to, actually. A lot, a lot more Italian. I mean, it, it's it's kind of, I think it's sort of like an Italian cookbook, but with touches of kind of British yeah. and touches of Australian. Leave my people alone. <laughs> <laughs> be, be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you you give a starring role to Sue's magical chicken soup, and that pretty much sets the uh, tone for for this whole section on that has to do with comfort. Um, tell us the story behind this, uh, your your love for Sue's magical chicken soup. Sue's magical magical chicken soup. I mean, it really was kind of the starting point in many ways for the book. Um, quite a few years ago, my mother was really ill, and she was in hospital for a long time, um, and she was really struggling to eat. And um, her a, a, one of her best friends from school, who she'd known for a very 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 long time, Sue, um, would come every day, you know, unprompted, unasked, but every day she'd come. And she'd bring a sort of Tupperware container full of this homemade chicken soup and she'd just leave it for us at the hospital. And, um, you know, my mother didn't want to eat it, but she felt sort of quite, you know, she felt quite, you know, she felt that she should eat it because Sue had kind of gone to this incredible effort to make it. So she sort of had a a, a couple of spoonfuls and from that she was able to, to have a little bit more. And then really all she could really stomach and eat was chicken soup and we really do credit that for for healing her um and it's it's a very nourishing delicious soup i mean if you have a chance to make it it really is heaven to eat but it also i just think it it it's kind of what i love about that recipe is it's for me it just shows how food can be delicious and wonderful but it can also just have magical powers beyond Mm -hmm. the sum of its ingredients and it can be an expression of love. It can be an expression of care. And often I find that it can be an expression of a set of, set of sentiments that we struggle to find the words to express. Um, and often I find kind of, you know, when you are lost for words, you don't really know what to say. Cooking can be a great way right. to say whatever it is now, you're it, it seems like you might have invented another country's version of Jewish Penicillin? Yeah, Jewish yes, penicillin. Jewish penicillin, exactly. Well, Sue does call, does call the chicken soup. She does say it's Jewish penicillin. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's her recipe. I give it, you know, I can take no credit for it, unfortunately. Yeah. And you have, you have different perspectives on, on um, what what is comfort food? A lot of people have different ideas about what's comfort food, and and um, you 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 emphasize that cooking um, for somebody um, is is a different approach to comfort food. And one of the things you have in your book that I don't I haven't seen in the other cookbook like it 
is you give directions for how you can um, package the food, um, leave instructions perhaps, put it on the doorstep, ring the doorbell uh, for somebody that you're, you're t- trying to comfort. And I thought that was a very, very good um, addition to, to, to the concept of, of cooking. Oh, thank you. Well, because I think it's quite useful. I think, you know, especially when you're cooking for someone and, you know, in times of kind of grief or illness, um, as a friend, you want to be there and you want to support your friends and show them that you care and that you love them. But there isn't necessarily space for you to kind of be in their home. You don't want to be an imposition. So an amazing way can be, you know, to to drop off um whether it's a, a tray of macaroni and cheese for them to kind of warm up in the oven later or a cold roast chicken yes. for them to make sandwiches out. And that I think it can be both actually a practical help, like if, if you are grieving um, or in pain or unwell and you have a family to take care of, having a friend support you by kind of leaving food that you can kind of give to your family and that saves you cooking for them can be a huge practical help. But also... Um, you know, on an emotional level, there is that thing of of being left a care package. It's just an it's, it's a very touching and, and and moving thing. And and you know, sometimes that's in time of grief, but you know, it can also be celebratory. I mean, there's a lot of joy in making a birthday cake for a friend to celebrate their birthday, or making you know a, a batch of cookies to drop off when someone's just had a baby, um, uh-huh. and you know, they maybe don't have time to cook for themselves. Um, so it, it can kind of go both ways. <laughs> Yes. Now, you yourself fell in love with your husband over his special crepes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you were probably impressed with the fact that he could actually uh, summon the prowess to make these crepes, right? Very, very impressed, particularly because we met when we were both 18. I think maybe I thought well, we just turned 19, but 18, 19. And I definitely couldn't cook, or I definitely thought I couldn't cook. Um, so the fact that he could cook, or sort of seemed to be able to cook, was incredibly impressive. And then the fact that he knew <laughs> how to cook crepe, which is my favorite thing in the world, was just sort of the the bee's knees as far as I was concerned um so <laughs> I had to I haven't heard that, that expression for a long time that's, that's something that my mother would have said the bee's knees <laughs> your mother too Rabbit, I think would say the bee's knees well, well, hold on a second I, 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 want to, I want to ask a difficult question okay how, how do you explain lamingtons that's Anthony's comfort food. It is? My, my husband loved lamingtons. Oh, well, I thought he liked, he liked to eat them, which I really don't entirely understand. <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing about comfort food is it's the strangest thing is we all have these sort of very different views on it, and it can be the strangest things that you kind of love. Yes, Guy's favorite thing is canned tomato soup. <laughs> <laughs> that I find really difficult to understand. But, <laughs> but it's the most bizarre thing. And had some argument with how you cook pavlova, sweetheart. Yeah. You, you you were trying to explain it to me. 
Oh, 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 I already talked to her about that. Is it? Um, she says that, uh, that her idea of pavlova is it should not have passion fruit, and I disagree. Of all the things in her book, that's the one thing I would disagree with. I think it actually <laughs> has to have. It doesn't even look like pavlova if you don't have passion fruit. Passion fruit. Well, it's a very controversial stance to take. <laughs> um, but but lots of whipped cream and no passion fruit. Yeah, it's um, it's it, yeah, <laughs> unconventional. Well, you know what impressed me the most about pavlova was, um, I had my friend's husband's recipe for pavlova, and uh, when I made it in Australia, it was perfect. You know, I'm just following this recipe. And uh, I tried cooking it in, in, um, back in the States, and it just never turned out. It just it was awful. I served it for lunch with a group of women one day, and this one woman said to me, it's the first time I needed a steak knife to cut my dessert. <laughs> Oh no! That's it was awful. I wonder what happened. I I, well, I don't happened. know, but my my Australian friend came to visit. It's her husband's recipe, and she attempted to make it in in in, in Pittsburgh in my oven, and she couldn't yeah. do it. It wouldn't. It just didn't translate. So she ended up. She was opening and closing the door. It had, had to do something with humidity because she was propping the door of a door open with wooden spoons and all kinds of stuff together to come out. That's so interesting. Yeah. That really is. I think meringues can be a little bit temperamental when oh, it comes yes. to humidity and environment. Um, so maybe that. It's, it's, maybe it's that's interesting, why. Sky. I, I think I saw a reference to this recent, recently in a cookbook, not, not similar to yours, but same, same general impression. And I didn't realize that Eden Mess is really a pavlova. Yes, it's a messy pavlova, basically. But no passion fruit in Eden Mess either. <laughs> uh, is it really? I didn't know that. It's kind of just, it's just meringue and whipped cream and strawberries, maybe with a little bit of syrup, yeah, but you, all you, sort of mashed you mess, together. You mess it all up and you're... You, I you're, may never have eaten, you're Etonians, actually. You're Etonians, including old Etonians, wolf it down. Prince, yeah, I don't Prince, know that I've ever had it. I think, I, Prince Harry, I think Prince Harry liked it. Well, I, I must say, I love eating masses. I'm a big yeah, you like it too. <laughs> I like it. Hey, but, but anybody who has the cheese in Marmite Souffle. <laughs> and what, what, what's the stuff that we had in Australia? Vegemite. 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 That was Vegemite. another one I could stand. Oh, my God. That's so delicious. You don't like you I mean, it's very controversial. Again, Marmite and Vegemite. You love it or hate it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, you, you, since it's Valentine's Day coming up, um, uh, talk to us about the, the section, and I'm bringing this up for a particular reason here. You have a whole section on a cooking to seduce. Yeah, mm. cooking to make people fall in love with you. <laughs> yeah, that one. And and then entering into that conversation was the um, the, the person who who asked for your advice on a, a long marriage, <laughs> to which you replied. 
I don't have the answer to that one, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I think it's funny how how you cook when you sort of first meet someone or in those early dating days is in some ways quite different from um, how you cook once you've kind of been together and lived together for a long time. Um, but the, I guess the one piece of advice that I have that's certainly something that I really enjoy is to keep doing it and to kind of remember to try and make the effort to, to kind of make time and space in your life for um, cooking for each other and kind of making that a special thing that you do for each other and just kind of remembering the sentiments behind it so that it's not a chore, so that it is, uh-huh. it is a pleasure and a kind of expression of, of love. And I, I also enjoyed your, um, your uh, sex section on uh, cooking for children and with children. Um, mm-hmm. You said that you, you didn't have experience cooking for picky eaters, and that all children seem to be picky eaters. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm very lucky that my children are about as greedy as I am, um, and they're not picky eaters. I mean, when I say that, obviously we have days. I mean, our eldest is 10 and our youngest is 3. Obviously we have days when they don't, you know, particularly enjoy what we've made for dinner. Or they're very fickle. One day they kind of like potatoes, and one day they don't like potatoes, or, or whatever oh, it is. But I, but I think I, what I found is that I don't indulge that behavior particularly. It's not like I make them eat what's on the on the table. I don't want them to feel sort of forced at all. And obviously, I want them to enjoy food, but. It, we do have a kind of family policy of like we cook a lovely meal. That's what dinner is. You know, yeah. you eat it. If you don't want it, that's really sad. Um, but there isn't really an alternative. And 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 as they've got older, they they really kind of fit in with that. And I, you know, and I never kind of make them eat food, but I do say, you know, we put a lot of time and caring and loving to this meal it, it's important to at least kind of recognize that gesture at least by trying it or by kind of sitting at the table with everyone else enjoys their dinner um so but we, we're very lucky that they're they're good eaters they they love food as much as we do so we're, we're going through um it seems to be an enduring phase with a granddaughter who hates mushrooms? I can't even fathom anybody <laughs> hating mushrooms. <laughs> I read this really interesting article once that said that um, in order to learn to like a flavor, you need to taste. That basically, not liking something is unfamiliarity with it, and it's sort of like a, I guess, a physical reaction that your body has to a flavor that's unfamiliar, and it. They basically said if you can eat something with an open mind, so you're not thinking to yourself, I hate this, I hate this. You're just sort of approaching yeah. it with an open mind. <laughs> but if you can kind of make yourself eat it 10 times, by the 10th time, you'll find that you like it. And it's quite interesting because foods that I used to not like, like I didn't used to like beetroot, and now I love beetroot. Or I never used to love oh, cauliflower. Oh, yeah, a lot of people don't really like, like cauliflower. A, a very famous um, chef uh, and cookbook author, um, that that we know can't stand beetroot because she says that beets taste like dirt, which they do. Really. Yeah, it's very earthy. You're right. It's a very very earthy flavor. 
But her, um, hus- but her husband loves quite her husband loves beets. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing that surprised me with, um, I mean, not not with our own, um, because we, uh, I mean, because we were in the the food industry. I'm, I'm not surprised that um, that you know, our son Adam was a foodie, but. Um, the the grandchildren didn't really grow up quite like that, but um, children seem to like pesto, which surprised me. They do. Ines, our eldest, his favorite food in the world is pasta con pesto. He absolutely loves it. I think yeah, it's quite salty, it's quite cheesy. It's really, um, it's, again, it's a very comforting flavor. Maybe because it's such an easy one to cook that we as parents make it often for them and come to like it. Yeah. Your children are beautiful, by the way. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they look very English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got very blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. B- blonde, fair skin, and, and the good Italian names. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, um, well, you, you have... Um, some really good recipes for cooking for children that are not them. You, you said, and, and I, I really was so happy that you to read that you said this, is you're not one to give advice on sneaking vegetables into dishes, which is one of my pet peeves. People who try to hide vegetables in other dishes, I can't stand it. <laughs> no, I've never, I've never, I've never kind of done that. I no, I never did think- either. I just think they're so yummy, vegetables. If they're cooked in the right way, they're delicious. So they should kind of just be, it's a shame to hide them away. You don't yeah. want to mask the flavor somebody of a wrote, Somebody wrote a book. A who, who was it who wrote the book, love, about, about feeding his kids? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I can't remember who that was. But yeah, he did all those tricks and stuff. And I, I predict that it will backfire on him. <laughs> Yeah. Now you you have the a lot of um, sweets in your section on cooking for children, and and I really understand that because I mean I my granddaughter said Nana, this is when she was much younger. I love candy cake pie <laughs> you know it went on like that <laughs> I mean, she, well I, I I have a very sweet tooth I have a very yeah. sweet tooth <laughs> um, but also I think kind of the that chapter is about cooking for your children but it's also about cooking with your children because um, I think a big part of like encouraging them to enjoy that food and and encouraging uh-huh. them to be not picky eaters is kind of bringing them into the rituals of cooking. And um, it's often, I find, easier to bake with children than it is to cook with children. Uh, you, you, you have the ultimate birthday cake, by the way, in here. Yes. Everybody should know. What makes this the ultimate birthday cake? Well, uh, both. I mean, we all love it. My boys particularly love it, but I, I love it too. It, it, so it's a chocolate cake. It's a chocolate sponge cake that you make with them. Um, I make it usually with Nutella, but any chocolate hazelnut bread will do. But then I kind of take lumps, like a spoonfuls of Nutella, which I freeze in the freezer in a, you know, an ice cube tray. And 
just before you put the cake in the oven, you kind of drop these sort of little rocks of frozen into the cake batter so that when the cake bakes, you kind of have the chocolatey sponge and then you have these sort of pockets of um, kind of runny, oozing kind of chocolatey yummy. That's great. Really obsessed with, yeah. <laughs> it's very yummy. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the brownie lady. Oh, yeah, we just got them. We, we, you know, we do, um, especially food producers too, and 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 we just encountered a, a company, um, a woman-run company uh, called um, Brownie Points, and and they they make all kinds of brownies. I remember when when um, Peter's mother was visiting us, she went crazy over brownies. Apparently, they're not English; they're very American brownies, are they? Um, well, I, I I guess they are quite American, but I feel like they're a part of American culture that the rest of the world has been very keen to adopt. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <'cause they're> yummy. <laughs> Um, no, something I that. I love brownies. Yeah, I mean, but you wouldn't believe how many varieties they have of of brownies. I mean, they they stretch it a bit. I mean, they they have a pavlova brownie, which Peter ate before oh, I could wow. taste it, so I don't know. What, yeah, what, what was what is it a like? Pavlova brownie. I don't know. I didn't get to taste it. He ate it. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was it was cloyingly sweet, but it was a, it was a little bit like eating mess on wheels. Oh wow! If that, that kind of gives you an idea. Now, the one the one thing we never we never found out about. Well, I don't, I, I don't think I found out about. It. They also they also make something that's called a bestie, which is yeah, like, which is like a brownie. Bestie. I never heard of such a thing. <laughs> Doesn't sound very appetizing, but I ate those I ate those too. Hmm. Um, the um. I was about to say something, and I can't remember what I was oh, going to say. About, you seem to, uh, I, I don't know if this is accidental or on purpose, but you seem to have hit a number of current, really important trends. And one of them I traced through your book is, your, but it could be because you live part-time in Venice and grew up in Italy, is your love of pistachios, which is one of my passions as well. Oh, I love pistachios. They're yeah, I do too. They're delicious, and they really kind of elevate. Yeah, um, you have everything. You have a, a pistachio pesto, um, which I make, but I use um, arugula and pistachios. Oh, I bet that's good. I bet that's really oh, good. Wonderful, yeah. It's really good. I we, must we, try we ran that. Out, we, we ran out for the season. It's a it's a tragedy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, now, another aspect of this book, which is I found extremely interesting, is a lot of people like to, to make things to give um, food as gifts. And you got really specific instructions, and you tailor this whole section, as what's spoil the section, yeah. about food gifts. Yeah. And, and there are some really great ideas in here. Uh, what are some of your favorites? One of them, of course, is pistachio butter, which sounds just heavenly. I, it's absolutely heavenly, and it's so easy to make. And I think it's kind of a great present because 
who doesn't want to eat pistachio butter on toast? Do you know what I mean? Like it's a very, it's a very nice. I'd be very happy if someone turned up on my doorstep with a jar of pistachio butter. Um, yeah, but there are lots of other other ideas. I mean, you know, there are like some classics, like there's the recipes for you know strawberry jam. And I make it with a little bit of vodka, so it's like a little bit, you know, more exciting or a marmalade, kind of more sort of old school, like preserves, which is, you know, quite a sort of classic edible yeah. gift. Um, and then there are, you know, uh, recipes for birthday variations on a the theme of birthday cake. Um, so there's a raspberry and marzipan birthday cake that I absolutely love and that I make quite often um, because I think, it, you know, it, it is really lovely to make someone a birthday cake when it's their birthday. It really feels like an honour to do that for a friend. Or, and it's a lovely present and it's a really good present for the person who, you know, has everything or you don't know what to get them. Or yes, exactly. It's, it's a really special thing. And then there are some other recipes that are kind of more to quick um there's like a recipe that i absolutely love and make quite often for um date and rosemary soda bread um which is very quick and very easy it's a you know it's not a dough that needs to rise you just kind of mix the ingredients together in a bowl and then pop it in the oven to bake um but i think you know to turn up with the gift of still warm loaf of freshly baked bread or a loaf of bread that you bake that morning perhaps with some butter or something is a very very special present um and it's the kind of thing you need to, if you're a house guest it's a really lovely present to turn up with or if you're um going for dinner at someone's house it's a lovely hostess gift or yeah. um equally it's a lovely present if someone's just had a baby or you know it, it, yeah. it's kind of it's, it's always going to be well received well, now, are we, are we coming to dinner at your house in London or your house in Venice? <laughs> well, I'm hoping both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we just interviewed somebody from a very large um, uh, uh, produce company that I was talking particularly about those Japanese strawberries that are sometimes white. And oh, they're wow. like five five dollars a piece or something, and I was trying to get a perspective on that. I've never had any of these, of course. Uh, they never send me any of those. <laughs> <But> anyhow, <laughs> apparently, uh, instead in Japan, instead of like taking a bottle of wine if you're going to dinner, uh, they would you take have upon a, a box. Strawberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so, that would be fun. So, and then yeah, concluding be here, you have something that's also very useful, is you have a, a list of um, menus, uh, which are really great. Like you have menus for one, menus for two, menus for four or more, um, menus for six or more. I, I mean, I think people are really going to latch on to that as, about this book. Oh, well, I hope so. I I was hoping that it would be helpful for, for readers because sometimes I think it's easy to stumble upon a recipe in a cookbook, but it's quite hard. You know, it requires a bit of effort to then translate mm-hmm. that recipe into a meal. So I was hoping that by creating the menus, I'd help with that a little bit. Yeah, and you don't scorn um, ready-made or shortcuts. Shortcuts. You don't scorn I, I those either. I love shortcuts. Yeah. <laughs> for the shortcuts. I'm with you. <laughs> Uh, well, again, uh, listeners, um, 
Sky McAlpine, A Table Full of Love. Um, it's it's worth seeking it out and just going working your way through it. So I, w- I wish you much success with this, Sky. And uh, I love talking to you again. I can't wait for your next book so we can talk again. Oh, thank you so much. I love talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Good day. You too. Bye. So cut off, rabbit. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, a little effort here getting connected. We're talking to Christine Flynn. Uh, about her book, her cookbook, A Generous Meal, which is, I can say, absolutely exceptional in every conceivable way. Um, I don't know myself quite where you come from, Christine Flynn. I know you're in Ontario, but you've traveled the world, lived around. Can you do a, a brief, um, just a, a brief outline of like where you come from, what you do? Sure. Um, Well, I was born in Nova Scotia, which is on the east coast of Canada. Um, Some people compare it to a tiny Boston, and the cities are not dissimilar. My family moved to the UK when I was about four, and we were there for just under. We were in Oxford. Oh, good. So I was a Cambridge Cambridge guy. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, they punt the other way, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really, a, a formative time in my my eating life, you know, because we had these tremendous school lunches uh, that were deeply enjoyable to me as someone who's had a lifelong love of beige food. And then when I was about six, we moved to the Midwest of Canada, and we were there for a little while, and then back to the East Coast, and we settled in Ontario when I was about nine. And I stayed there pretty much until university when I went and uh, did a history degree uh, in Halifax. And the whole way through university, I sort of worked at different cooking jobs. And that's what really got me on my way, this love of food, but also history and travel. And once I started working in restaurants, I found that the travel and the history were very connected. So I wound up moving to Massachusetts. I worked on Nantucket seasonally for seven years. And, oh, wow. you know, when you're a young person, yeah, that's a very good lifestyle, right? Because you go and oh, yeah. you work the summer season, you work very hard, uh, much harder, much harder than I work now, uh, much more physical, you know, and restaurants were different mm-hmm. back then. This was really before there was a glamorization of the chef role. Oh, right. Well, but I was, remember that. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk all about that some other time. But so I was on Massachusetts, uh, or I was in Massachusetts about seven years. But in the winters, I would always do something different, right? So I did one winter in Berlin. I did another winter in... It was. I did another winter in Manhattan. I went to the French Culinary Institute there. Uh, I ended up staging in Burgundy. 
and you know had a, a bit of a a real education again in the three things that I love, which are food, travel, history, and then I sort of settled down when I turned thirty, and I came back to Canada. And I started working for a restaurant group here that is called IQ Food Co. And we do healthy, fast, casual. So a complete oh, departure wow. from American fine dining, but a challenge and mm-hmm. something that's impacted the way I cook because you're working with much more nutrient-dense foods. And we were working in high volume, but with everything scratch-made. And then when my daughters were born, <laughs> I moved uh, out to Niagara, kind of out to wine country here and commuted in um, and, you know, cobbled together odd jobs, did some marketing work. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit, I just kind of hunkered into writing books. And so I've been doing that. And now I run a winery in Niagara, which again is a complete departure, but oh, yeah. um, one that I have a very diverse skill set that um, I actually really enjoy. It's the, really the first job I've had where I'm able to use all those things I love and really create experiences. And I still get to cook here for classes and teach people, and so it's nice. Sounds good. And, uh, and you handle five-year-old twins. So that's also good. <laughs> yeah, they, they keep things exciting. Well, I mean, it's hard sum- summarizing um, a cookbook that has so much in it, and yours does, a, gener- a generous meal, modern recipes for dinners, subtitle. And, um, and it, it, there are some extraordinary things about it. Um, the Thank first you. one is, I think, um, you do have this voice of experience in it that, that you couldn't hear. Uh, but you, you're also, um, you have a sense of, uh, philosophy, poetry in your writing style, in your thinking style, and the recipes are infinitely creative. I mean, uh, I, I, I never, it's the first cookbook, and I get a lot of cookbooks, where I found a whole chapter on cabbage. <laughs> I never yeah. knew what to do with all my cabbage. <laughs> and, and you must have extraordinary friends because you talk about entertaining and, and starting out with um, oysters on the half shell and hot vinegar. And I'm not sure I'd be brave enough to, to introduce that to a, a, um, to a regular dinner party. Well, I think that people who dine with me uh, know what to expect by this point. So, you know, and not everyone has to eat everything, but I, I always like to put out an array of dishes, and I think – you can swing for the fences with a dish or two. And uh, there's, a, there's a great quote by Mark Twain where he says, why not go out on a limb? Because that's where all the fruit is. And I think, <laughs> of course I have, yeah. I have a good <laughs> roster of, of, you know, easy recipes and, you know, things like the garlic fingers. Everybody's going to like that. But, yeah, every once in a while I put out something which, um, which challenges people. And I think being challenged at the dinner table is one of the gentler ways that we can be challenged, but we should all be challenged every once in a while. So, you know, that's my gift to my guests, I suppose. (laughs) You must have great friends. I must say, Um, I I mean, I I would never ever attempt to serve salt cod brandada with a, at a dinner party and you do it with style. 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, that, that could also be um, cultural, right? Where I'm from on the East Coast, salka is a very common food. And I think you'll see, too, in, in the scope of the book that I really, I pull in recipes from all over the place. You know, I pull in the, the red cabbage with uh, bacon, you know, which is more or less from Old Town and Prague. Um, mm-hmm. And I pull in these, these classic dishes and, and present them with, again, what I hope is a bit of a cohesive voice. But we're all looking for good recipes and things that um, are maybe something we're familiar with, but in a different way. And really, the Salkod Brandad, it's delicious. You know, they eat it all over Spain. We eat loads of it in the East Coast. And if you think about it, it's not dissimilar to the flavor profile of a fish stick. And again, every American has had and likely enjoyed a fish stick. It's just all on how you sort of present it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I've tried a, a number of thing, things with um, radishes. Um, in, in short of, I mean, instead of slicing them up in a salad. Um, and, and I've even roasted them. They always seem to have something missing. But you, with all these recipes, you, you seem to have one thing that sets them apart or elevates them. And like your roasted radishes, you, you make them with horseradish, which I thought was extraordinary. Yeah, I think there's so many low-key but high-impact touches that – you know, you wouldn't necessarily know if you're just a home cook. And what I like about this book is I am taking 20-plus years of working in restaurants, but I'm distilling it down and trying to create recipes which people will want to cook and which will be gentle on them to cook. And as I say in the book, there are going to be some fiddly bits, but hopefully – they're the kind of fiddly bits that you enjoy because uh, I think it's always good to kind of get out of your head and into your hands. So there's a couple little fiddly jobs. But in general, everything is supposed to be kind of gentle to prepare so that you can enjoy the process of cooking as much as you enjoy the eating. Well, but, um, it's just that I'm always sort of – I reach a point in the recipe. The recipe starts out, and it seems to be a familiar recipe. Then I get to the point – where all of a sudden you add something that elevates the whole thing, the whole experience. Um, Thank you. you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> my favorite food, if I might tell you, is potatoes, and you're really big on potatoes, too. I love them. Well, I'm ethnically Irish, so it's, you know, it's in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I had a, a, um, a, a Dublin neighbor when I lived in Philadelphia, and she said that I was honorary Irish because of my love for potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're a perfect food. And there's more potassium in a potato than in a banana. The banana board yeah, I didn't know that. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're nutrient-dense. They're easy. Again, everyone has um, – Everyone has pretty much, I would say, a relationship with a potato. And, um, and some people think that they're, they're not as special as they are, but they're, they're very special because they're so accessible, and you can prepare them in a myriad of ways, uh, and they are deeply enjoyable. They are deeply comforting. And, yeah, I just think, what's not to love about a potato? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to try this sweet potato recipe. i Sweet potatoes generally leave me cold, but this looks good. Paprika, sweet potatoes with lime with lime crema. That sounds good. 
Yeah. And, and, yeah, and the other the thing, one. fennel. I love fennel, but you, you of course, I, I, I think you should put lemon and a bit of citrus and everything. But you do a caramelized fennel with citrus and parmesan, which I think is good. And I think carrots need a lot of help, and you do it with tahini and herbs. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you just seem to have a different take something we bring to all these recipes. Um, now, you're influenced in, in part by all the places where you've been and worked and so forth. And also, um, I don't want to say trends, but um, focus at the moment, such as you have a, a huge section here on vegetables. Tell us about vegetables and how you approach them. I love vegetables because I find them to be so interesting, you know, and often overlooked. And, um, you know, again, I, I quote this author, Lori Colwyn, frequently throughout the book, and she's one of my favorites. Um, she has two slim volumes of essays that she wrote, I want to say sort of late 80s, early 90s. But she makes this great point about growing up and you kind of have meat uh, and potatoes, and then vegetables are an afterthought. But but what if they were the first thought? And I love that. And that's why I have I have a section where it's a side of vegetables, and then I have a section where it's a center of vegetables. And that doesn't mean that you can't have meat with your meal or put out a few, you know, nice slices of flank steak or a couple lamb loin chops. But to make vegetables the focus of your meal, I find you um, you can create a lot more variety. It's more economical, which is very important to me, too, as a mother of two and someone who's working a lot and just trying to get a good meal on the table. Um, and they're also pretty straightforward to prepare most of the time. You just – a couple t- tips and tricks. Uh, but I think, too, a lot of my vegetable recipes, one of my favorites would be the, the lemony – or sorry, the lemony spaghetti squash with burrata and herbs. I'm really not trying to cover them up. You know, I'm really mm-hmm. trying to let the spaghetti squash be the spaghetti squash. And I think giving these kind of little little accoutrements or little, you know, splashes of vinegar or, you know, little little dab of, of labna or yogurt or whatever, you're really making vegetables the focus and really highlighting them as the beautiful and vibrant and delicious ingredients they are and treating them with the same amount of care as you would an expensive piece of meat. Um, to me, I, I just prefer to eat that way, and it's not, really a, it's not really a trend for me. I think I've, I've just eaten that way for a long time, and, um, and it's nice that it's resonating with people now, you know. And, again, there's, there's really only so many ways you can cook a steak, but there's a million <laughs> ways to cook a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you like uh, squash, too. Um, and you have a recipe in here for pumpkin stuffed shells. Um, the, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, with brown butter bechamel. Why would anything with brown butter bechamel not be wonderful? Um, but the, your use of pumpkin reminds me of what section in Italy were we in, Rabbit, where we had the, the pumpkin pasta? Tuscany. Tuscany? It was the place where the, where the guy had his restaurant in the wall. Yeah, that one, that one. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, how did you 
organize this book. I've been just sort of jumping from one thing to another, but you must have had some kind of a an idea of organization when you put it together. Well, you sort of, it's a bit like doing a puzzle where you kind of get the, the edge pieces, you know, corner pieces first. So I really, um, I, I had written, a co-authored a book called How to Eat with One Hand previously, yeah, and it's a, a book for uh, new and expected parents, but also anyone who loves nachos, uh, and again, kind of nutrient-dense, uh, but cozy, comfortable food. And I, I actually had quite a few recipes left over that didn't sort of fit in. And I also, you know, as you say, there's a lot going on in the book, but I did start with the chapter heading, but there were a lot of things that are in that book that might not even be obvious, but that I wanted to include that would make the book very personal to me, but also, um, well, all the clothes that are in it are, I've either made or are are vintage. Um, I noticed the clothes. I noticed the clothes because they were like not what usually you get people, um, cookbook authors dressed up in in the photographs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and to be fair, I don't know how else to to explain it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, the, the the aesthetic of the book was very important to me. And I work with a tremendous prop stylist, Andrea McCringle. And I mean, I would be lugging stuff to set. And if you, you know, if you look in the in the photos, I approach the, the little sets we built for each photo, like, um, I don't know if you ever read those I Spy books. Um, but yes. there's little details in every yeah, photo. Peter and, loved those, yeah. You know, yeah, and in, you know, for instance, in the radish dip photo, if you kind of look in the background, there's an old black and white photo of, uh, of my grandparents, and my grandpa's wearing his World War II, um, you know, uh, RC, or Royal Canadian Air Force uniform. And um, there's, uh, in the baked eggs recipe, there's a plant that I love. And so there's all these little details that are in there. Uh, and also, I think we had a little bit more of a variety of models than you see in uh, in a regular cookbook. You know, it's not just me in the photos, and it's not just people who are me-like, uh, which was something that was important to me. Um, but, yeah, and I, I think also I really tried to make a book with recipes that I felt were achievable for people. You know, mm-hmm. obviously some of the ingredients are a little out there and you might have to dig around to find them. But again, I shopped for the whole thing. We have a our store here called no frills. It's not very fancy. You know, it's, it's no frills. If it's frilly, it's not usually there. And pretty much everything for the book other than, you know, the odd little tin of fish or a nice spice that maybe someone had given me, it was all stuff that I could find, you know, and that it meant that the book, even though I think the recipes look really beautiful, it's really saying, you know, anyone could make this. You could make this. Like, I really wanted to make this book that was so personal, but that I felt like anyone could kind of enter this world and be, become a part of it. So, so anybody, anybody could learn how to cook toad in the hole? <laughs> Absolutely. That's a childhood dish, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. that's something, you, you know, we ate that in England growing up very, very oh, regularly. Sure, sure. And that was one of the favorite ones. It's just a big Yorkshire pudding with some sausage in it, you know? Yeah, I know, I know what it is. I was there. 
<laughs> I was there. He's from Yorkshire. I was there when he was on the table. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> um, the, you have also, you give a lot of attention to salads, which are also close to my heart because I have salad just about every day. And nobody could believe I like salad that much, but I do. But yours are very exciting. Yeah. Well, salad, I think. Um, well, first I, of all, again, I you define it my... differently. I mean, how do you define yes. a salad? Yes. Well, I mean, a salad can be almost anything. It just has to have, you know, kind of some key components. And, um, you know, you have to have something for a good salad, right? Like I'm not talking about a, a wedge of iceberg with some vinegar on it, which really, particularly – in in the new world for a long time was all we had for salad. Exactly. Um, you know, that's what it was. And that was, you know, and then along came romaine. And it wasn't until sort of Alice Waters um, helped develop micro lettuces that we really came up with, you know, baby lettuces and microgreens and yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, really, salad now... For me, if I'm building a good salad, I want something creamy. I want something crunchy. I want something acidic. Um, I like something herby or leafy. And, um, and I like something vegetable-y. But what that is, you know, I think the, the photo of the salad that I have there, it's, it's a, a halloumi and torn plum salad. You know, so there's really not much vegetable in there. I think there's some radicchio. But it, I think what I like about that, too, is inspiring people to use what they have or use what's fresh and available. And if you're driving past a farm stand or, you know, you're at the farmer's market in um, whatever little town or city you are, you can get something that looks really good and you're inspired and encouraged to go home and make a salad, quote unquote, out of what you have, you know, and what's there. And you can sort of cobble together something delicious and enjoy it. And it's, it's not really about rules. It's more about a formula. Yeah. Now, I mean, you have a, a, a recipe here that we just interviewed somebody from a Portuguese marketplace. But anyhow, um, you have a clams and kielbasa. And um, mm, it reminded me that yeah. I've always wanted a you know, cataplana, but I didn't think I'd really use it that much. Uh, you know, that, that when you turn it, it has two different compartments. And, and and one of the things that the Portuguese make is the clams with the, um, it's not kielbasa, what is it, the meat they use? Linguiça, you know, maybe. Probably, something like that. Anyhow, um, and, and you have a recipe for that. Um, it, your, your fish, I mean, I, I expect somebody with your background to be really good at fish, and, and these fishes are great. Um yeah, they were fun, and that's, that's one of the pieces of feedback I've gotten. Someone said the other day, they're like, it's so nice to see a robust fish section. And I was like, well, thank you. You know, I didn't, I didn't even really notice. It's just I wanted to put together recipes that, again, as I sort of say in the intro, like fish is so great, you know, and it is, it's a good mood food, and there's so many different ways to eat it, but it is something that even my editor commented. She said, I, I don't cook fish at home because I find it intimidating. And I just think, oh. well. Let's let's sort that out, shall we? <laughs> you know, yeah. but, you know. Another section of the book that was interesting is your section called "Dinners I Remember." 
yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I suppose it's a bit self-indulgent, you know. But I wanted to write, uh, and again, very much in the style of Lori, uh, Lori Colwyn, I wanted to just include some little essays and little stories. And for me, each of those stories was very impactful. And there's a little bit of this section, I, I sort of give stories of really important dinners that I remember. And there's a little bit of high-low there, right? You know, I mean, there's... Mm-hmm. Um, there's the story of discovering, you know, in the in the early 90s that the shopping mall department store near my grandma's house had a restaurant on the top floor and how oh, yeah, know, right amazing that, that was. And, yeah. I, you know, and I, it was the first time I'd ever tried a BLT. And I think we forget how important some of those memories are. And there's a lot of different important layers because, of course, my grandmother's passed away. Many important things in that story, but just also remembering at the time. I have a lot of memories from when I was a kid of trying something for the first time and being like, wow, you know, like who would have thought to put bacon, lettuce, and tomato together? And um, and still inspires my cooking to this day, right? I mean, I've got another salad in the book that kind of tastes like a BLT, and that's why it's great. Um so, you know, that's certainly, that's a memory of eating a $2 sandwich in a shopping mall with my grandmother. But then I have other memories of travel and, um, yeah, I just wanted to write a little bit about that. And in the same way as I write about a couple other things in the book that um, I think are part of the book as a whole and part of getting to know me and also part of creating this kind of cozy little little world that I want people to be able to open that book and and find something that engages them and makes them kind of, you know, want to, in a, in a, in yeah, a not well, real way, but it makes them want to kind of hang out with me. Yeah, it's really very refreshing that you're, you're not uh, snotty about anything. I mean, you seem to be rather yeah. basic and down to direct. Listeners, just, just to give you an idea of how approachable this book is, on the left-hand page of a fold-out page, is is the story of of how our, our guest met, managed to get a free meal at per se in New York. <laughs> and, 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 it wasn't a free uh, meal; it was a free upgrade. It was a free upgrade. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then on the right the right hand page is your visit to the one of the Turkish markets in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, which, and I think which is the really story that that's also telling. It's an intriguing place to go. Absolutely. The story that that's also telling, uh, you know, in a bit of a read-between-the-lines way, right, is that that a really good dinner, a really good meal, you know, you can eat at a very fancy restaurant, but you can also go and spend $3.50 on a plate of black-eyed peas and a little braised lamb, and, um, and it's still delicious. And I think... We all need to remember sometimes to take um, to eat the meals that we're having as they are intended to be eaten, um, and to come to them with an open heart. But any dish can be compelling, you know. If, if food is made with care um, and it is, you know, served in the right environment, any meal can be compelling. And, and I think that's a, a through line in the book too. 
You know, yeah. these aren't meals necessarily, although we do have the section on the joy of eating alone, which encourages you to eat standing. Oh, I read that one too. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. fun. I like that one a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That, yeah, I mean, it, these aren't meals that I'm sort of like, you know, eat this um, alone in your modern apartment, um, you know, while watching Netflix. Like, these are meals to kind of like linger over and enjoy. And I think I'm really encouraging people to to take that time for themselves or to take that time with their guests. And, um, and that section on dinners I remember is, um, is a little tribute to that and the ways that different meals have impacted me. Well, listeners, um, check this out. A Generous Meal, Modern Recipes for Dinner by Christine Flynn. And you're going to find much, much to love in this book. And um, did you do the photography, by the way? I read where you were a photographer as well. Boy, the photography I did not do the photographer. I have an amazing team for this. And uh, we're actually working on another book tomorrow. Um, So, yeah, there'll be another one in two to three years. Keep (laughs) keep us in mind. What's the new one? Yes, absolutely. It is kind of teaching people how to cook with a few different philosophies um, that really, again, is sort of in keeping with the current zeitgeist of affordable meals, but just different techniques um, that are really basic and that sort of reframe the way that people cook and make delicious meals. I can't say too much at the moment, but it is, it'll, I will let you know when I'm able to share a little bit more. And how about one, one more plug for your winery? Oh, yes, I work at the Good Earth Winery in Niagara, Ontario, and uh, it's a beautiful little fairy tale spot, and you'll see some of our wine in the book, and um, it's a great little place, and if you're ever north of the 49th parallel, you should come and see me. Come to a cooking class. <laughs> and, and listeners, don't, don't for a minute think this book is not without its quirks, because the final page, or the final photo here, is um, some person, I don't know if it's you or not, in leopard pants uh, and shiny black shoes and a broken wine, stemmed wine glass with spilled wine on the floor. <laughs> that really the happened. End. Too. It wasn't on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great, Christine. Thanks for talking to us. And uh, I, I wish you continued success in your career and much success with this book. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure.